Amen. Well, track down a Bible and get with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. This is a new series now called The Heart of Christ. We are hopefully asking and answering the question, what is he like? What is he really like? So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 reads like this. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking right now as we open your word that you, by your spirit, would speak to us. We want to hear your voice. We want to know what you're really like. We want to know what is on your heart. So Lord, please use this time for your purposes. Amen. Amen. This week I gave an individual a ride. They were, uh, they had car troubles, they were having financial troubles, and they had a need, and they asked me if I would be willing to give them a ride from point A to point B, and my schedule allowed for it, so I gladly did that. I gave that person a ride, and um, later on, maybe two days later, I came to the realization that I could not find the church checkbook. And it was in my car with me earlier in the week, and so I began to think through, okay, did I misplace it? Did this person take it? Um, so I began looking everywhere that I knew to look. I looked in the car. I looked, you know, under the seats to see if it had fallen down the crack there. I looked in my home office. I looked uh, in all of my stuff. I just went through everything, and then I was like, okay, great. Now I, got, I have to call the bank. I have to put stop payments on all the check numbers beyond the ones that were actually written by somebody from our church. And so it was this huge inconvenience. But I began to think, oh, man, this person is taking advantage of my kindness. Like I gave them a ride in my car and, you know, who, who, what kind of person, I understand that they were in a rough spot, but what kind of person feels that it's appropriate to steal a church checkbook? And what does that even look like? And what would that mean for them to even try to cash anything at this point, knowing that I'm quickly going to uh, be looking into those things? And so that's where my, my head went. And then uh, later on that evening, Ash comes up to me with the checkbook in hand and says, hey, look, look what I found. Guess where this was? And she said, Harrison had a box of stuff that he was playing with today, and he took the checkbook, and it was part of the things that he was playing with. And I was like, oh, whew, okay. But... What did I do in that, those earlier moments? I made a snap judgment about somebody's character with the information that I had, and it was wrong. I was using the information that I had. I was thinking through the possible scenarios. I was thinking about that individual, and I said, they probably stole it from me and from our church. Now, the truth is, we often make the wrong judgment. The question that we're trying to answer with this series is, do we really understand who Christ is? Are, are we able to accurately judge his character? And, and most of us probably aren't sitting around going, I think he's a thief, right? We're probably not jumping to that conclusion. If you are, we should probably talk about it. But um, most of us would look at Christ and, and possibly come to the wrong conclusion of what 
what he's really like. And that's been true for me, uh, that I, you know, even as someone who's committed to reading the scriptures over and over and over again and preaching the word and all those sorts of things, there are moments where I realize how I think about the Lord sometimes doesn't match up with who he really is. And in fact, there are two resources that have helped to recalibrate me in this, and I want to point them out to you. The first is an old one. It's from 1651 by a Puritan pastor named Thomas Goodwin, and it's called The Heart of Christ. That's, you know, the idea of our series comes from really the concept of this book and the scriptures that unfold that reality. But The Heart of Christ by Thomas Goodwin is an excellent book that I don't recommend because it's old and hard to read. But then there's a newer version, kind of. It's in the same vein. It's by Dane Ortland, and it's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And uh, the publisher of this one, it came out last year, but the publisher of this one uh, made trade paperback copies available for local churches. And so we have a bunch, and we've given away a bunch, and if you want one, it's yours, but this is an excellent book. And here's kind of the premise of both books. The heart of Christ is really for us. And uh, we'll try to show you that in the series here, but the heart of Christ really is for us. And often what we wrongly conclude is that Jesus is not really on our side. And we, we need to try really hard and we need to be really good, but the truth is he probably rolls his eyes at us when we fail and he probably gets annoyed by all the inconveniences of having to deal with us repetitively and all of those sorts of things. But when you start to look at scripture and you start to find out what, what the Bible says about the Lord, it can be surprising in a good way. So let's look then at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and we'll find here three different things. They're, they're all related to his heart, but the first one is his heart. It tells us about what goes on on his interior. It tells us what he is like and what he feels and how he thinks about us. But then secondly, it tells us about his ministry, which is an outworking of his heart his ministry, and finally, it'll give us an invitation. It'll give us his invitation to experience his heart. So let's get to work. The first thing that we find is that he is compassionate. B.B. Warfield wrote an article. It's called The Emotional Life of Christ. You'll probably hear about it in multiple sermons in this series, but B.B. Warfield looked at the scriptures in the New Testament and said, what what is the way that the Bible talks about how Christ feels? What, What is his emotional life? And the one concept that emerged as a front runner beyond any other concept in there was the idea of compassion. He is compassionate. That's the primary emotion that he feels toward his creation and toward us. He is compassionate. We find that here in our passage in verse 15. It says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest. It's a double negative. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. So really it's saying the opposite then. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. And actually the word there in the original is hard to translate. That's why it comes across in different ways in different versions. It's a word that means compassionate in the sense that that you're drawn toward. So it's saying we do not have a high priest who is uninterested in us who doesn't have that compassion that pulls us toward him, but we have one, in fact, who does love us and is drawn to us. The other place in the New Testament where that word is used is in the book of Hebrews. It's at the end there in chapter 10, but it reads like this, you suffered along with those in prison. And that's the same word. 
which is weird, right? To, to go, you can either translate it suffered along with or empathize. But it's saying you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So it's a group of Christians that saw their brothers and sisters in Christ incarcerated and they were drawn to them. They, they knew that they had heavenly possessions and so when their houses were ransacked and their possessions were taken, they were okay with it. In fact, they were joyful because they knew they had a better and lasting possession. But here's the, here's the motivation. They had compassion. They were drawn to their brothers and sisters in Christ and they suffered along with them. So when you think about Christ and how he feels about you, the first thing we recognize is he is compassionate. He is compassionate. He is drawn to us. He is moving toward us in our need. He's not think, sitting there going, man, this is such an inconvenience that, that you need me. No, no, no. He is naturally drawn to us. In fact, Thomas Goodwin, in his work, he, he describes it that way. This is the normal or natural work of Christ versus the strange work. There's a strange work of judgment. Um, the, the strange work of judgment is that he does punish sin. But what Goodwin points out is that feels, that feels unnatural when you look at the, the foundation of his heart. The foundation of his heart is that he is drawn to us in our need. Now, this is different for me uh, because when I start to look at myself and I make those comparisons between myself and the Lord, I find us to be very different. When somebody calls and they say, hey, uh, I've got a need right now and you, you need to drop everything and help me with it. How do I feel? Inconvenience, because I'm selfish, right? And I, I will reluctantly go, and oftentimes I'll go, you know, that was a really good thing that I did that. But when I'm being honest, when a need emerges, and I have to meet that need, I find myself going, this is not what I want to do. And so I project that on the Lord, and I go, you know what? I think when I sin or when I fail him or when I suffer, um, I think when all of that is going on, he, he's probably just thinking that way, like, like I would. Like, this is an inconvenience. Like, I can't believe that I'm having to deal with this again. And he's rolling his eyes, and he's thinking, man, what, what a pain. You should know better by now, Cor. But the truth is, he is eager. This is who he is. When, when we make that call to him and we say, hey, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what I need. He's like, I'm in the car. I'm on my way. This is what I am made for. This is what is natural to me. This is what he does for us. He is a lover of us. He is compassionate. He is drawn to us and he's happy to meet those needs. Now, the reason that it's that's given here in verse 15 is that he is familiar with our suffering. He's familiar with the human condition. In verse 15, it says, but we have one, a high priest, who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So he's familiar with what it's like to be tempted, and he's been tempted in every way, just as, as we are, yet he did not sin. He, he understands what we're going through. He's been tempted in every way. Now, now, obviously, his life was abbreviated, and he didn't go through every single identical scenario to what we might face. But it does suggest to us here in the text that he has gone through every 
kind of temptation. He's gone through uh, temptation in every way, just as we are, and he knows it maybe even better than we do. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, points that out. He says, here's how he can be tempted like us in every way. He knows temptation better than we do because he didn't succumb to sin. He was tempted, but he didn't cave to it. He was tempted, but he went all the way through it, so he knows it even better than we might. Now, one of the things I've noticed is that middle school students and high school students will often say to adults, you just don't understand. You just don't get it. You, you can't possibly know what I'm dealing with, mom and dad. You, you don't get it. You don't, you don't understand the unique situation that I'm going through. Now, I hear people say that quite often, and the truth is, a lot of times that's an inaccurate assessment. A lot of times parents actually do know quite a bit more than, than young people might give them credit for. They might be much more familiar with the struggles than, than children would, would uh, allow for them to, to feel. So one of the things we have to be careful about is we often say the same thing to the Lord. You just don't get it. You just don't understand what I'm going through. Like you don't really, like, you don't really know what it's like to be me and to have these unique situations. And the Bible here is correcting us and saying, you can never really say that and have that be accurate. You can't look to the Lord and say, you just don't, you just don't get it. You just don't understand. No, he does. And that's what makes him uniquely qualified to meet our needs. He has a heart of compassion. He's familiar with the human experience. And he wants then to, to draw near to you and to help you in your time of need. Well, that leads us to his ministry. His ministry is an outworking of his heart. And it's described for us here in these different ways. He is a priest. Verse 14, since we do have, we have a great high priest. He's a priest in the sense that he's a mediator. He's going between God and us. He's able to bridge the gap between the two. He is a, a priest in that sense. He, he has this job title then of being a priest, and he's able to do his work with the appropriate vibe. In fact, a couple verses later in chapter 5, uh, it describes the human office of the high priest. In chapter 5, verse 2, it describes it like this. The human high priest can deal gently with the wayward. If that's the ordinary way in which the office is, is exercised, then the point that's being made is the Lord can do even better. Like a human high priest understands weaknesses and is himself subject to those weaknesses, but the Lord is familiar with them and willing to help. So he's able to help the wayward with gentleness. The work itself, the most significant work that a high priest would do uh, I, there's a lot of things that they would do, but one day in, in particular is circled on the calendar, and it's the Day of Atonement. And um, the Day of Atonement is a job that is uniquely suited for or uniquely assigned for the high priest. There was this, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, they, they had a tabernacle. They built this tent, this movable tent. And then within that tabernacle, they built a, a curtain partition and there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And inside of there was the Ark of the Covenant and these uh, carved angels with their wings spreading out over the Ark of the Covenant. But this was a location within the tabernacle and later the permanent one, the temple. This was an area that people were not allowed to go in. They were not permitted to go in except for once a year, the high priest had a job to do in there. 
And so the high priest would have to get himself all set and ready and would have to go in. And there was fear and trepidation because this is dealing with the, the holy of holies. And so you don't take this lightly. And so they would make all of these different arrangements and preparations and they, they would go in and they would have bells on them so people could be listening. Are they still moving in there? They actually had a, a, a rope tied to them so that if the noise stopped, they could just pull that person out from the rope. But it was this really significant work that they would have to do, the sacrifice of atonement, where they would bring the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and they would make atonement for the sins of the people. Well, this passage here is reminding us that Jesus is our high priest, that he is the one who makes the sacrifice of atonement for our sinfulness. And the work that he did is actually much better than any earthly priest could ever perform. In fact, it goes on to say, verse 14, he has ascended into heaven. And you go, okay, what, is that, what does that mean, dude? Like, Cor, why should that matter to me? But the reason why this matters is because Jesus didn't go into an earthly tent. He didn't go behind that curtain to make the sacrifices for us. He actually went into the real holy of holies. The temple itself and the curtain there and the tabernacle and all of its iterations previous to to the reality, they were just a copy. In fact, in Hebrews, it tells us, we'll put it up on the screens, there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The, the thing on earth was a replica it wasn't the reality. It pointed to the reality, but it was a replica. So it needed to be made exactly to specifications because it was a representation of the true one. Now, I don't know if this is real or if this is just kind of, you know, preacher stuff that gets passed around in, in my circles, but um, people will say that if you buy a very, very expensive painting, you actually get two. You get two copies. You get the real one and that's in a case, and then you put it under lock and key, and then you get its replica, and that's what you might display. And so, uh, I don't know, I don't have any expensive paintings, I know nothing about that, and I don't know if it's real, but it is a neat little illustration that there's something that's real, and you put it away, and then you have the replica of it that's meant to be identical. Now, that's something similar to what the tabernacle is. It is built after the pattern that was shown to Moses because the real one is in heaven. So when our high priest ascended into heaven, he was doing something that no earthly priest could ever perform. When he was making that sacrifice of atonement, he went into the real holy of holies and made satisfaction for our sin. In fact, later on in chapter 9, verse 26, it describes it like this. The sacrifice that he made, it was once for all. It was a one and done experience. He doesn't have to repeat that experience. He did it and it was entirely effective. When Jesus Christ, our high priest, performed his ministry of care to us, he accomplished what he set out to accomplish. He died in our place. So his ministry is one of care. It's one of being a priest who deals with us gently. And it's one of making sacrifice for our sins. And this is who he is. Verse 14 goes on to describe him like this. Jesus the Son of God. His name, which remember the angel gave to Mary the virgin, 
she was instructed, call him, name him Jesus, because that means salvation. And he is Savior then, and he is the Son of God. John Owen, in his commentary on Hebrews, describes the importance of this. He is both fully God and fully man. Therefore, he is perfectly suited to the role of being our Savior. He's the perfect mediator between us and the Father. And his work then and his ministry then is exactly what we need. He is able to be our Savior and to reconcile us to God. So here's his invitation. Here's the third thing we find here, his invitation. If his heart is a heart of compassion and his ministry is one of a saving work, here's the invitation. It's twofold. The first is, hang on. Verse 14, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Hang on tight to this reality, the confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. Hang on firmly to that faith which we profess. Allow for that to be the thing that you are clinging to and you are orienting your entire life to that reality. Jesus is Lord. And hold on to that because the truth is we, the, the world might have a bear hug around our waist trying to pull us away and pull us to other things that are going to promise to give us joy and satisfaction and the desires of our heart. But we need to be the people who are holding firmly to the faith that we confess. Jesus is Lord. And what I've noticed in my own heart and in the hearts of people that I serve, this does not come easily. We do not cling to the confession of faith that we, that we profess. Instead, we, we quite readily move away from it. We might say it in church, we might make some pretty dramatic commitments, but when you look at the reality of our day-to-day -day lives, that profession of faith is not something that we're holding firmly to. It's way off in the background. But this is reminding us that if his heart is for us, and if he's ministering to us in these ways, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Cling tightly to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and allow that confession of faith to mark everything that you do. Everything that you do. So when you go to work tomorrow, how does your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ influence you in that environment? When you're hanging out with your family this evening, how does your confession of faith, how are you holding firmly to that reality of Jesus Christ being Lord and Savior, and how is that showing up in your ordinary life? Well, the second invitation is one to go to Him, to go to Him. John Owen, he puts it like this, seeing that we have a high priest, one who's described in such a way, go to him. If he really does have that heart of compassion and his ministry really is for us and in our best interest, then let us be the people who are quickly going to him. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Let us go to him. Let us quickly rush to that throne of grace with confidence that he will gladly meet our needs. Let us Go to him because there is no one more competent or capable than him. The needs that you have, the brokenness in your life, the suffering that you're experiencing, he is there for all of it. And we need to be the people who are quickly flying to him. That in prayer, we're, we're going to him on a routine basis and we're saying, only you, Lord, only you can meet the needs of my heart. There is nothing and no one else who can satisfy the longing of my heart like you can. Approach his throne of grace with confidence. 
Don't go with trepidation. Don't go with concern. Don't go with reserve thinking, I wonder if he's going to receive me again. I wonder if he's really going to help me in this instance. No, his character pushes us in that direction to say, he is absolutely longing for you to come to him. That's his desire. And he is ready and he is able and he really does want you to fly to him in prayer and make your needs known to him. Here's the problem though. Most of us are very reluctant to do this. Most of us are reluctant to go to the Lord for a lot of different reasons. One might simply be fear of rejection. We're not sure how he's going to receive us. Or fear of unworthiness. We, we recognize we should be better. We, should, we shouldn't have to deal with this like we're dealing with it, but here we are, and so we're, we're worried that if we actually get honest with the Lord that he might be upset with us. Or what I've seen in my own heart and in counseling others is that we too often, instead of flying to the throne of God's grace, we visit the workshop of self-righteousness. Let me, let me describe it like this. We, we will often barter with God. And here's how it sounds. I've prayed this exact prayer before. God, please spare me from the consequences of my sin. I know that I screwed up. I know that if I got what I deserved, it would be bad. Please protect me from that. And then I deal with him and I say, and I will never do that again. Right? I will never do that again. And I add to that, I will show you how serious I am. I will, I will prove to you my commitment to you. Now, here's a, here's a line that, that arrested my attention several years ago. It's from Ted Tripp. In, in Ted's, Ted Tripp's book on parenting, he said, do you know what that is? That is distancing yourself from God. That is, that is actually not you going to God, not approaching the throne of God's grace. That's actually stiff-arming God. What you're doing in that sort of dialogue with him and that sort of bartering with him, you are actually moving away from God. You are moving into that realm of self-righteousness. Let me say it again. Too often we avoid going to the throne of God's grace and instead visit the workshop of self-righteousness. We screw up and so we say, I need to fix this. I need to make this right. I'm sorry, God. I'm going to do something about it. And what God is inviting us to do is the exact opposite. Don't, don't go out in your own strength thinking that you can overcome the power of your temptation and sin. No, instead, go to God. Go to the Lord and Savior who is ready for you. He has arms open wide to receive you in love and in compassion. His heart is drawn to you. Go to him because he alone is uniquely qualified to give you what you need. So receive from him, verse 16. Go to him so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Go to him so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's what we most desperately need right there. It is the mercy and the grace that God alone can offer us. What we need is mercy and grace. We need God to give us what we don't deserve and what we can't perform. We need him to give us his righteousness and to extend his pardon. We need to receive that mercy and that grace from him. And this is telling us that he is willing to help us in our time of need. Every time we fall short, every time we find ourselves suffering or discouraged or failing, we should fly to the throne of God's grace and we should approach with confidence knowing 
that this is the very heart of Christ. This is what he wants for you and for me. He wants to gladly receive us and he wants to help us in our time of need. So let us do that right now. If you would, please stand and and bow and I'll pray. And let's allow the Holy Spirit to continue to search our hearts and our lives and remind us of this great and gracious heart of our Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you that you are a compassionate and gracious God. That the way that you think about us, the way that you feel about us is that you are drawn to our need. You're not annoyed by us. You're not rolling your eyes at us. You love us better than we can even love ourselves. You want what is best for us, and you have performed a ministry to see to it that that is a possibility. So help us to hold firmly to that faith that we confess. Help us to go to the throne of your grace to receive mercy and grace in our time of need, every time of need. Help us to receive from you all that you have for us. We pray in your name. Amen.